so we've been in 1 John, and finally, I thought a couple weeks ago we'd be in 2 John, but um, here we are. Two of the most neglected books of the Bible. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on 2 John as well as not given one. So um, 2 John and 3 John, those little letters tucked in the back of the book of the Bible. They're really short, both of them, and in each, one, in each letter he says, he writes, um, I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. So clearly John has a lot he wants to say to whoever he's writing to, but he wants to wait. So these are kind of like quick, dashed off notes, but because they're from an apostle, um, they're authoritative, and so they end up in the, in the Bible. But most people haven't read them, but there's actually great value, little bits of great value in, in these short little letters. So um, we're going to be looking at 2 John today, and we'll look at 3 John next time. So you really get some insights into the early church, uh, first century church, reading these. The overall subject of 2 John and 3 John is pretty similar. They both have to do with itinerant, um, that's a big word, traveling <laughs> preachers or teachers that show up at various churches. And John is sort of overseeing the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And he's he was the guy over that section of the world for decades as the go-to pastor. And when Laura and I were there doing a kind of a Christian tour of Turkey, um, everything was about John, everything. His grave is even there, you know, they've got a big monument around his grave and everything. So it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Um, what do you do with traveling preachers when they show up? Or teachers when they show up? Or people that say they're prophets when they show up? Second John seems to be focused on the false teachers who come along and present themselves as true Christians but are actually not. They're her heretical. Third John kind of deals with hard heads in the church that don't want anybody coming through uh, sharing anything. So there's a tension here between Christian love and generosity and a welcoming spirit and protecting the faith in God's people from error. So both those things are really important. And neither actually should exist without the other. So, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time, they say. I have a really hard time doing that. No, not really. It's, it's not that hard. But um, you can be a welcoming, loving fellowship and keep a tight rein on what is taught at the same time. And churches have to do that, especially in the early churches, because that was common to have these kind of passing through teachers or preachers or whatever. So before we go to 2 John, I want to tell you about another document that's very early in church history, not as early as the New Testament, but right after that period, early 2nd century, maybe mid 2nd century. And it's called the Didache. Um, it's it's um, pretty close to John's time, not, not too long after, a few decades later. It's a wonderful look at early Christianity and it covers all kinds of topics. It's just kind of a fun read. But, but one of them is what to do with traveling prophets and apostles. Now there would have been potentially true prophets still around in that period right after the apostolic age but the apostles would have been all gone by then but these are small a apostles. You have to kind of understand about the word apostle just means a messenger or a sent one and so there are apostles of Christ those are people that Jesus personally ordained as his sent one. So those are the 12 and then the Apostle Paul, those guys. But there's also little a apostles and they're people that are sent from churches out to do mission work or teach or do those kind of things. So those are small a apostles. So um, they're not this, they don't have the authority of a 
apostle of Jesus, but they do have maybe great things to share, right? From just as any good teacher might, teaching the word of God. So um, just to have that in your mind. So that was pretty common in this period of time. But how do you know if the traveling guy is legitimate, right? How do you know he's not some kind of a con artist or a heretic or has some kind of a weird thing he wants to share? So what are the rules? So the Didache, now I'm not talking Bible, just talking what the early church after the apostolic period, at least some churches said and wrote down. Uh, so I just want to read part of it to you. It's kind of fun. Now concerning the apostles and prophets, these are little a. They don't have little a in Greek. I, I'm just giving you the English version of that. These are little a apostles. Now concerning the apostles and prophets, act according to the requirements of the gospel. Every apostle coming to you, welcome as you would the Lord. And he should not remain more than one day. And if he has a need, also another. But if he remains three days, he is a false prophet. <laughs> in other words, take him in, but prophets... And apostles, like fish, start to smell after three days. <laughs> that's, kind of the, that's kind of the message. And it goes on here. It says, when the apostle goes forth, when, you, when he leaves you, he should take nothing except a loaf of bread. Do you get the feeling they had TV preachers back then? <laughs> yeah. I do too. Same kind of personalities. They just didn't have TV. They had to walk. <laughs> anyway, he should take nothing except a loaf of bread until he arrives at his night's lodging. If he asks for money, he is a false prophet. Also, you should not test and judge any prophet speaking in the spirit, for every sin will be forgiven, but this sin will not be forgiven. That's an inadequate understanding of that one verse, but don't worry about that. But not everyone speaking in the spirit is a prophet, but only if he should have a lifestyle of the Lord's character. So if he says he has a spiritual gift and God is giving him some kind of revelation, his character better show it or else don't worry about him. Therefore, by his lifestyle, you will know a false prophet from a true prophet. And, this is really detailed, any prophet ordering a meal in the spirit. So this is a revelation he's claiming. And he's ordering a meal. I need a Big Mac and fries <laughs> and a large Pepsi. No, I can't have that stuff anymore. Any prophet ordering a meal in the spirit should not eat of it. Otherwise, he is a false prophet. So he can order a meal for somebody else. But if he orders a meal for himself, he's a false prophet. Every prophet who teaches the truth, but does not do what he teaches, is a false prophet. Every prophet who stands the test and is genuine, even if he uses symbolic imagery in the church, so long as he does not teach others to do the same, should not be judged. His judgment comes from God, and so did the prophets of old. But, Whoever should say in the spirit, give me money or something else. Now, have you ever heard a preacher say, the Lord has told me that if you send me $1,000, you will reap $100,000. One of those kind of, that's, they had those guys too. Do not listen to them. But if concerning others in need, he says, give, let no one judge him. So if he says, there's a poor person over there, you should give him something then do that. But if he says give it to me, hit the road. The great theologian Bugs Bunny, that's what, how he responded. <laughs> hit the road. <laughs> so don't let them ask for money. That was the main thing. So there were many charlatans obviously running around doing the same shtick that people do today. Using the generosity of Christians 
to take advantage of them and get a free ride. That was pretty normal. So the church has made rules like this. And again, this is not Bible, but uh, it's just kind of interesting. So um, I do kind of appreciate their wisdom in this. So they saw through these guys pretty quick. Okay, so on to the letter here. So John is a big A, capital A, apostle. So what he says is absolutely authoritative. You don't have to believe the Didache, but you do have to believe the Bible. That's your obligation as a Christian. So the salutation um, begins. It's a letter. Uh, it's really interesting. And Bible scholars have spilled a lot of ink over verse 1, trying to figure out exactly who he's writing to here. Because he doesn't have a name. Who is he writing to? The elder to the chosen lady and her children. So first thing to notice is John calls himself an elder. He actually, in fact, he actually says the elder. And that's not too surprising because none of the apostles, if you read their letters in the New Testament, pull rank very often. They don't like to call themselves apostle. James calls himself the Lord's brother uh, instead of an apostle. They, they prefer to present themselves as servants and in ministry, they present themselves as shepherds or elders. Peter does exactly the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. He tells the church leaders, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle. doesn't pull rank. He connects with them as shepherds of the flock because that is their greatest task. But who's he writing to? It says, the chosen lady. The chosen lady. So the Greek words there for her are electa curia. Electa, elect, that's where we get our word, elect, chosen. She's chosen of God, elect to salvation, that probably means that. Which is a common New Testament description of believers, all believers are the elect. Curia is, is a feminine version of the noun kurios. Kurios is what we call Jesus, the Lord. That's the standard word for Lord, for Christ. Kuria is like lady. So just like in the Med Middle Ages, you know, you, the lords and the ladies, we talk about that, the highborn people. In Roman society, they had people like that too, that were well-heeled, as they say, or well-born, as they used to say, or, you know, highly placed people. So, um, so Kuria could be a woman of high standing if he's writing to a woman. And I'm not at all sure he is. There's three views of this thing. One is that she's some unnamed Christian lady of rank. You know, she's got a high position in society, a noble woman who maybe hosted a church in her home. That's one view of this. Another view is that her name is Curia, which is possible, the elect Curia. Um, in Aramaic, the name Martha means lady in the same way a highborn lady. So it could be a Greek version of the name Martha. There's not a lot of evidence for that, but um, it's possible. Um, there's no other... Um, uh, I don't think that's what it is because it doesn't really go well with the w word. You don't have any examples in the New Testament of a name being connected with elect. The elect Joe, you know, or something like that. We don't really see that. So um, I don't think that's probably right. The third view is that electa curia is the church that he's writing to. She's the lady. And her children are the members of the church, the believers in the church. So she's not a person, she's a congregation. I actually prefer that view for a couple of reasons. For one thing, he doesn't give any personal greetings in this letter at all. He doesn't say anything to her personally. And like if you read 3 John, it's written to a guy named Gaius, which is a Roman name, and he, t and he greets him personally. He doesn't do that here 
with Curia, the, the elect Curia, the chosen lady. So that's not there. He also mentions several individuals in 3 John, but he doesn't mention any individuals in 2 John. So he also, in verse 3 of 2 John, he says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now, I'm not sure you say that to an individual when you're writing a letter. I'm really glad to hear a few of your kids are walking with the Lord. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just not sure he would say that. But you could say that with a church, if you're writing to a church, you know. So, um, the last verse also, verse 13, the end of the letter, he sends greetings from another unnamed elect woman and her children, right? He says, the children of your chosen sister greet you. It could be a lady named Korea's sister, but it, Probably it's his congregation where he's writing from and he's sending greetings from them and the believers there to this other church and I think all of that makes way more sense than her being an individual person. That's just my personal opinion. It could be completely wrong. But um, I think that's right. Makes better sense. Anyway, uh, also I should mention that you know, female personification is not unusual in scripture. Uh, in fact, John wrote the book of Revelation where Israel is pictured as a woman. Uh, you know, she's got stars over her head, 12 stars and all that kind of stuff. So that's very possible. And Peter also, again, at the end of 1 Peter, just does exactly what John's doing. He sends personal greetings to his readers. He uses a couple of names, but then he mentions she. And he uses electa with, with that again, she, the elect one. 1 Peter 5.12, it says... Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, there's the Babylon, she and chosen, sends you greetings, so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. So she's not named she who is in Babylon. Well, who's that? Well, that's the Christian community in Babylon. I think everybody pretty... Now, Babylon might refer to Rome there. There's discussion about that. But... He's clearly writing about a group of people. And he says she. So why call a church she? Why, why do we call ships she? I don't know if we do that anymore. Maybe they're binary. I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but typically we call them she. We used to call hurricane she. Then we got some male hurricanes. I don't know. It's, it's all confusing. But who is the church in the Bible? Good girl. You're sharp. The bride of Christ. So it's natural to call the church she. I think that's a proper and right thing to do it. So what does John have to say to Electa Curia. The chosen lady. Well he wants to tell her that he loves her. Which is another reason this probably isn't a personal greeting. <laughs> it's not a vague warm feeling he has about Electa Curia. But a, a particular love that's rooted in something else. So First John 1. Let's pick it up there again. The elder to the chosen lady and her children. Whom I love in truth. And not only I. But also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth. Which abides in us. And will be with us. Forever. So he loves her in truth. And everybody who knows the truth. Will love her too. That's what he's saying. So Christian love is. Deeply rooted in what? Good, I heard the word truth. Yeah, that's right. Christian love is rooted in the truth. The truth about Jesus, the truth about what Jesus accomplished for us, the truth about his kingdom and all of that. So it's deeply rooted in God's revelation of himself in Christ and in scripture. So we know God as he's revealed himself. The only thing we know about God is what he's revealed. 
and he reveals himself in the, in the book, right? In scripture. And we love him. And out of that love for him comes love towards other people. And we can see right here in verse 1 and verse 2, John, John, just like we saw a gazillion times in 1 John, gazillion might be a slight exaggeration, a, a lot though. He, he likes his favorite words and he picks simple words and then he repeats them multiple times in a paragraph so that you can't miss it, you know. So he does that a lot and he does that here too. He repeats words several times. He does that so he can hammer those words into us. Gently hammering, but he does it through repetition. So the nail that he's hammering in this particular first verses here is the word truth. Truth is mentioned five times in the first four verses. It's a major theme here. And you can't, escla- you can't escape how closely he links truth with love, Christian love. Truth and love. Those words are the subject matter of this letter. Truth and love are also the defining characteristics of the nature of Christian fellowship and how we care for each other. We do it with truth and love. If you just do it with love and you don't have truth under it, you're going to make mistakes. If you have love and truth together, it's going to work out. If you have truth without love, you're going to hurt people. So both those things go together always, always in Christian conduct. Okay, so John says he loves the elect lady in truth and so do all who love the truth for the sake of the truth and that truth remains forever. Do you think he cares about the truth? I, I, I think he does. I think that's something really important to him. Now, just look at these two opening verses and then let me ask you a question based on what we just read. What is the basis of Christian love? From one Christian to another Christian. What's the basis of it? Good, the truth. <laughs> so I'm just trying to make sure you get it. He's hammering and I'm making sure. I'm making sure the nail is well placed. So our unity, our encouraging each other, our patience with each other, our love for each other, our serving each other, our giving to each other, all of those kind of things, even our rejoicing with each other and weeping with each other have to be rooted in the truth. Our confronting each other about sin, which we owe to each other, and, and it needs to be done in truth, right? It's all rooted in the truth about the Lord Jesus and truth about the gospel, the, what he did for us, who Jesus is and what he did for us. So the elect lady, the chosen bride of Christ, is a very diverse group of people. They're ethnically diverse, they're culturally diverse, they're economically diverse, and just plain old personality diverse, right? We're all different kinds of people. We all have our little weird ways and bents and stuff like that. We all, some of us are extroverts and some of us are introverts and all kinds of things, right? We've all, we all have different backgrounds and different life experiences and we're very diverse people. So the church includes all kinds of people. One body, many people, many kinds of people. So the body of Christ, which is this spiritual entity, is manifest in local congregations of living human beings who love each other and belong to Jesus and are commanded by him to love each other. So we talked about that a lot in 1 John. What is love? Remember how we defined love? Love is wanting what's best for the other person. Your, Your relationship with another person is always to want what's best for them. And that has to be based in the truth, right? That has to be based in truth, how that plays out. A believer in Jesus wants and works for what's best for other people. That's how we conduct our lives. Most certainly that includes people like us, but also includes people unlike us in background, 
in interest, in culture, in subculture, all of that. And it makes a beautiful picture of God's grace to all people groups when we do that, when we have this kind of love for each other. We have a common love for a savior and the truth and that transcends all of our differences and enables us to serve each other and love each other well. So that's what he's talking about here. So the church, the elect lady, is like a mosaic of wonderful, diverse human beings, all imperfect, but who all have a common bond in the greatest of all truths, which is God came into this world in Christ as a, as a man to pay for our sins, to die for us. That's the great truth. He redeems us from our sins, paying the penalty for our sins himself. So that truth, John says in verse 3, is in us and will be with us forever. That's what he says. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Verse 3, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. What a triple blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace. You can't do much better than that. So grace is God's free favor. It's unmerited. He just gives you grace. He loves you. Mercy is not holding our sins against us. He's forgiven them. And peace, well that can only come with a full understanding of the salvation that Christ purchased for us. And the fact that we have reconciliation with God and that he is our father. He's not our enemy. He's our father. He's not a stern judge. He is a judge, but he's our father for believers. So that will be with us, he says. And then notice his last words in verse 3. In truth and love. See, there he goes again. Truth and love always go together. As different as we may be, we have the same center. Jesus is the truth. We have the same foundation. We have the same worldview. And the Spirit of God is literally taking up residence in each one of us to bring forth this love for the truth and this love in truth. And we love each other according to the truth. So he points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does. And to the truth. Revealed by Jesus. The things that are true about Jesus. And the things revealed by the apostles. So this idea of truth and love. Binding us together. That's what this whole letter is all about. And as an aid in understanding. I decided to shamelessly steal. Warren Wiersbe's outline of 2nd John. So um, anybody with a 2 W's name. Is worth quoting. So. <laughs> Now it's a really simple outline. Let me just give it to you real quick if you're jotting things down. So he says verse 1 through 3 is we must know the truth. Verse 4 through 6 we must walk in the truth. And verse 7 through 11 we must abide in the truth. Abide means to remain in, right? So that's a simple outline. Know the truth, walk in the truth, abide in the truth. We already saw the first main point. We must know the truth. We've already talked about that. So in verses 4 through 6, you'll notice the repetition of this new word, walk. Walk appears a bunch of times now. Walk is a wonderful, wonderful word because it describes, some translations take that out and put something else in there. I love following the Greek text on that and just walk. Because walk, walk suggests the daily, it's more than just like living it, which is what some translations will say. Walking implies and puts in your mind every step, every step you take, day after day, every place you go, every, every bit of your life, every movement, Every ongoing thing, the day-to-day, moment-by-moment reality of living out 
your Christian faith. That's, a, that's why it's called a walk. It's a great word. It's step by step. Following Jesus isn't something you set aside time to do. It's something you do as you walk all the time as you go throughout your day. So Christ is the welcome guest in all of our activities. Yeah, but not when I do this because I get pretty... No, he's got to be there too with you, right? Even our thinking. He's never, he's never to be far from our thinking, our minds and how we relate to the world, how we think about things. Verse 4, he says, I was very glad to find some of your children. Now this is what my Bible says. Some of your children walking in truth just as we have received commandment to do so from the Father. So step by step in the truth. Now, pause. I have to give a rant about translations. Okay, so I don't like the word some there in verse 4, if your Bible has it. Mine has it in italics. So the New American Standard puts it in italics. When they put it in italics, they means it's not in the Greek text. They're sticking that word in there to help you understand it. And I don't like the word some, so throw it away. It's not, I think that's bad. It's not a word in the Greek text at all. It, Translators put it in because it's bad English if you don't have something there. But you know what the King James Bible does? Now that's like 400 year old translation, but they did it absolutely perfectly. Perfectly. The King James reads like this. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in the truth. That's literally what the Greek text says. And they just do it in English without sticking the some or anything like that in there. Because when I hear some of your children, it sounds like a few. To me, when you say some, it's like less than half or something. And he's not saying that. It doesn't even imply that. He doesn't suggest that. Oh, some of your children are walking in the truth. Thank God, because you got a church of 5,000 people and 57 are walking according. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, he's saying that of your children... I, I'm glad to hear of your children walking in the truth, which means many, it could be many, it could be a lot, it could be a, a larger percentage. So that's my translation rant, it's over now, but um, <laughs> I don't think you should stick words like some in there. Anyway, if, if a number of those attending the church, let's say it like that, and I'm adding that word, I would supply that word. A number of those attending the church are walking in the truth, in obedience to the Lord. And here again we have this linking of what? Truth and love, right? Truth and love covers so much of what a Christian is all about. That's everything. This walk that John's, John mentions is to be done in obedience. Obedience to God. That's the emphasis here. So truth appears four times in just this section, four through six, but so does commandment four times. So now we're talking about obedience to God in more detail. So verse 5 and 6 he brings love into this picture of the walk an obedient walk. So he says now I ask you lady lady being the church I think not as though I were writing to you a new commandment but the one which we have had from the beginning that we love one another and this is the love that we walk according to his commandments. That's exactly right. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning that we should walk in it. So truth and love are not optional. They are commandments. God commands that we walk in love. He commands that we walk in the truth. That every step, every conversation, every action is to be for the benefit of other people. And when you're not doing that, you're in sin. Honestly. And you need to repent of that. You, you don't act for yourself. You act for other people. That's, now that doesn't mean you can't do something for yourself ever. It means, but you, don't, you won't do something for yourself in lieu of hurting somebody else or taking advantage of somebody else or investing all of yourself into yourself. 
You're supposed to invest yourself in the good of other people. And that's a very freeing thing when you figure that out, actually, that that's why you exist. Walk in the truth, walk in love, walk in obedience. It's a package. They all have to be present together. Now in verse 7 we get down to John's actual purpose here. Up until now he's reminding them of these core Christian ideas, practices. Now he's going to say stick with it. Continue in it. Especially because there's a serious opposition to the truth out there. Remember we talked about the people coming through town? Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now does that sound familiar? People that come and say Jesus has not come in the flesh? If you were here for First John you better be able to answer all about that. So what was that cult called? Good, good people. Four of you remember. No there was it's the Gnostics cult which was the first great Christian cult Christianity had to fight in the first and second centuries and they believed that some lesser God made the world and imprisoned all of our spirits and bodies and Jesus came who's the Christ came upon this man Jesus and took him over for a little while to teach us how to escape from the flesh that we've been imprisoned in by this lesser God that made the world. That was their actual doctrine which is pretty weird. Definitely not a biblical idea. And so that's what he's talking about here. So that's why John emphasizes you have to believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Because they would say God would never come in the flesh. A spiritual being would never choose to become flesh. And the greatest truth of the world is that God became flesh. To become a real human being. To pay for our sins as a man. That's the, great, that's the gospel. So this is anti-gospel. It's anti-salvation. It's robbing people of the great truth of what God did in coming in Christ. So it's just like 1 John 2.22 and 1 John 4.3. It's the same thing he's talking about in 1 John. So we talked a lot about that. Deceivers and Antichrist. So the cult is called Gnosticism. It's Greek philosophy masquerading as Christianity. So verse 8. He says watch yourselves. Notice the plural. He's talking to electa curia. But he's, now it's in the plural. So he's talking to a group of people here. Look to yourselves so that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. So he's writing to real believers. He's saying your labor for Christ, everything you've accomplished for him can be ruined if you're not careful to be obedient to God by walking in the truth and letting truth be the foundation of your love for each other. He says if you can't do that, you're going to spoil this wonderful church you've, you've uh, developed there. Under Paul's tutelage. And uh, John's tutelage. Paul founded those churches. But John's pastoring them. And then he says. It, it's so serious. That your reward in heaven. Might be diminished in some way. Not that you won't go to heaven. But you know. There's levels of reward. And your reward might be eliminated. Or di diminished. He wants you to receive a full reward. So you need to be up on this stuff. It's not. It's not love. To let heretics come into the church. And false teachers. And Gnostic wicked Gnostic people. You can't let them invade the church. You can't let them have at your people. That's what he's saying to Electa. Electa of Curia. Now on to verse 9. Verse 9 is a really useful principle for the church at all times. It's actually why we're here. And why, and why, it's why, verse 9 is why here at Acton Faith Bible Church we are really careful about the ministries and books and podcasts and preachers that we recommend. 
you know, uh, we've got a, a, a list of people that we would recommend or not recommend, you know, and uh, it, it's important that you not listen to the wrong people. Verse 9, anyone who goes too far, that's what my Bible says, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. That's such an interesting phrase, goes too far. Some translations, modern translations say runs ahead. That's just a really interesting thing. What do they mean by that? They go too far means that they are denying essential Christian truths. And in this case, it's like God come in the flesh. That God became true man. Christ came in the flesh. So some translations say run ahead, which I, I think is a good way to say it too. Some, here's what's going on. And you will meet these people in the world. Some people claim that they are beyond Bible Christianity, fundamentalism, or is the way they like to put it, or things like that. They're, they're beyond that. They've gr- outgrown that. They were raised in that, and now they see better. They get it now. They're, they're moving ahead. They're going forward. And they're leaving everything that's essential that we believe and that the Bible teaches, they're leaving it behind. That's what he's talking about. People that are doing that. Some people claim they are advancing, but they're leaving the truth behind. That's why he uses that phrase. It's really interesting. Way back, way back in 1979. <laughs> so James Montgomery Boyce, who's a preacher we would recommend, a uh, great preacher. He's passed on now. He's not around anymore. But he wrote a commentary on 1 John. I actually use it when I'm doing my preparation for um, some of the stuff I've been doing here. He's one of the one of the sources I use just for ideas and stuff. But he, when he was tr- translating this, and he used the word progressive. <laughs> I just thought that was amazing. Because now there's a pretty large movement within Christendom called progressive Christianity. And I was thinking, what did he know? Because well, I don't remember, I don't remember in 1979. I mean, that's right about the time I became a Christian. I was, I was like, I don't remember there being a progressive Christianity. There was a lot of other weird things going on, but I don't remember that. So I looked it up and progressive Christianity actually started about the mid-90s. You know, we've talked a lot about it here, but, um, but he, he knew. And that, so that's the word he chose to describe um, this running ahead, progressive, progressive. So when I'm talking politics, I'm talking about theology right now. They're kind of connected sometimes, but that's a different subject. So it's interesting that, um, that that's true. But anyway, I think Boyce picked the perfect word. These are people that reimagine Jesus using his name to move what they would say we're moving forward. And we've got to cut loose from scripture to move forward. Because that's holding you back. Scripture's wonderful, it's nice, it's a testimony of God in some ways, but... We've got to cut loose from that. We know better now. We know better. So progressive Christianity, um, they're going beyond the Bible. I guess the most famous example is Rob Bell. I was trying to think of him. He actually grew up in an IFCA church. That's what we belong to. And he actually grew up in a church like ours. It was a fundamental Bible church. He became, he became very cool, which means he had skinny jeans and skinny glasses. And... Um, <laughs> And he became the pastor of a very large church, Mars Hill Church, back, back east. And everyone thought he was orthodox cool. And he made cool videos. But 
something I noted, what, what they called pneuma. Those were the videos. Spelled N-O-O-M-A instead of pneuma like the Holy Spirit. He had his own spelling because that's cool to do that. Anyway, the videos asked a lot of questions and hardly ever gave any answers. And so it was always a little bit something going on there with him. Even though the church was supposed to be orthodox and believed in the gospel and everything like that. Time Magazine in 2011 said that Rob Bell was one of the hundred most, one of the hundred most influential people in the world. Now there's no way he was that, but that's what they gave. They gave him that title. So, um, and then one by one, the questioning videos started to be the denying videos. And he slowly started denying every major doctrine of the faith. He left his church. He came to California, got hooked up with Oprah Winfrey and started doing new age preaching tours with her. Always attacking the Bible, but in a way that said he really loved the Bible, but it's just not true and it's outdated. And he, he's moving beyond. So it's exactly progressing beyond the truth. And that's why John uses that language there. And others have, uh, you know, he kind of ran out of fame. His 15 minutes of fame were kind of done a long time ago. Now he just has a little podcast somewhere. He kind of lost. He was trying to become a TV person through Oprah. And that never really worked out because he's kind of a dull, dull guy. But anyway, um, others have picked up that progressive mantle. And progressive Christianity has no set of doctrines except all embracing love which really means sexual freedom when you just look at what they actually say. That's what they're talking about. So they divorce love from truth. And that's what, exactly what you're not supposed to do. Because truth defines what love really is. And when you divorce them, what you're calling love isn't love. Right? So that always leads to disaster. Always. Spiritually and culturally. And if you want to see what they believe in their own words, you can check out that really excellent film uh, series they made. Um, uh, American Gospel and I think it's the Christ crucified version of that they did a couple of different things that deals with progressive Christianity in a lot of detail and you can because they let them speak for themselves and then they just show you what the Bible says and that's uh, pretty helpful but John is talking about those who go too far in speculating and in theological musings by detaching themselves from the Bible as their authority and whenever anybody detaches themselves from scripture, they're in a bad place. They say, though, that they're about Jesus. So you have to be really cautious and you have to listen very carefully. But they're just making up a Jesus to suit themselves. That's what they do. So Jesus, to them, is not a savior because people don't need saving. That's what progressive Christianity says. And in verse 9, John says, these kind of people do not have God. Whatever else they are, they can be sweet as pie, but... They don't have God and they're not bringing you God and they're taking you away from God. So the true Christian, a true Christian does not move on from the Bible to find Jesus or to make up Jesus, right? A true Christian loves Jesus as he is in the book and everything the book has to say about him. That's what a true Christian does. They're faithful and they remain with him because a man made Jesus, actually the made up Jesus is pathetic compared to the real Jesus. Who wants to follow that guy? Let me quote James Montgomery Boyce in his uh, little commentary on 2 John here. There is a true progress in the Christian life. But it is progress based upon a deeper knowledge of the historical, biblical Christ. You want to progress? Get to know the Bible Jesus better and you'll be progressing. 
Progress on any other ground may be called progress, but it is a progress that leaves God behind and is therefore not progress at all. Exactly. Exactly right. So listen, whatever issues you have or whatever questions you're wrestling with or trying to figure out, the answers are found in the real Jesus, not a speculative made-up Jesus. And you've got to know that. You're not advancing towards Christ by losing Christ. By moving away from him. So John's direct counsel here in verse 10 should not really surprise us. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. That's the purpose of the book. That's why he wrote the book. What do you do with these travelers? If they're not bringing this teaching... Do not welcome them or greet them. Is that clear enough? Even if they're really sweet and have nice short hair and white shirts and a tie <laughs> and a bicycle. <laughs> now listen, you, you should love false teachers in the truth. You should pray for them. Be kind to them. You should be towards a false teacher everything that we are to be to all men. But don't encourage them. Don't support them. Don't bless them. Don't help them lead vulnerable people astray from Jesus Christ. Don't do that. My wife shuts the door in their face. I welcome them in because uh, I want to share the gospel with them and she's perfectly right and justified to shut the door in their face but I want to talk to them. So I, I do bring them in my home but I don't bring them in my home to encourage them. I bring them in, the, in my home to share the gospel with them. And to plant seeds of doubt about what they believe. That's what I do. And I've become famous in some circles for doing that. <laughs> but um, in fact I think I'm on a list because they don't come anymore. But, uh, <laughs> so, so we're supposed to love all people. And, and that includes them. These are, these are people that are personally denying Christ while claiming to be a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. And a lot of them basically they just don't know any better. But don't say brother or sister to a false teacher because they're not. You can say Susie or Joe and be nice to them but you can't do that. They're in darkness and they need the light. So don't welcome them. Don't welcome them in. So if they come to my door, I do let them in, but uh, not in any way will I affirm them, except as human beings, of course. I'm not going to be mean to them. In fact, one Mormon girl one time, they had two more. Mormon girls are much more fun than Mormon guys. They, it, so we had a couple of Mormon girls come in one time, and, and she said, you're so nice to us. People yell at us all the time. Oh, we're just kids. That's what she actually said. We're just kids. <laughs> and I'm 18 years old, and people are yelling at us all the time. She said, you're really nice. But, but my whole goal was to plant doubts about, about their faith and to present them with the truth. And when they lay their little map on the floor that shows two rivers you have to cross to get to the celestial kingdom and Jesus gets you across one river but they've got to do their works and good deeds to get across the other, other river, I share the gospel with them and say that that's totally not true. And I tell them that Jesus is all sufficient for their salvation needs. Because I care about them. More than they know. <laughs> And they're in darkness and they need the light. So anybody showing up at this church that comes here for the, and this happened 
the purpose of bringing in strange doctrines or strange teachings. I will meet with them. I will talk to them. I'll have a conversation with them. If the conversation doesn't go well, I show them the door. But I always tell them, if you ever want to know about the real Jesus, you come back and I'm happy to talk with you about that. I'm not going to cut people off. But I'm not going to let wolves play with the sheep either. <laughs> Did you notice that's a bad thing to do if you're a shepherd? To let wolves play with the sheep? Because you might turn your back. They might look like they're frolicking with them, but you turn your back and you've got less sheep. <laughs> and there's blood on the ground and, you know, a little fur and stuff. So I just like... <laughs> So John is saying abide, abide in the teaching, abide in Christ. Don't turn to the side, don't run ahead. Jesus is exactly where you want to be and he's found in the book. There's nothing better. 1 Corinthians 1.30, the Apostle Paul says that because, because of God, he says, quote, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is all of that if we remain in him. That's what you need to know. He is all of those things. Run on ahead and you lose it. You lose it all. Let's pray. Our great Lord, we ask you to keep us close. Keep us in the truth. May the truth be the foundation of our love always. Keep us from running ahead. And keep us from falling behind. But let us walk in the truth. And love. And keeping your commandments. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.